appreciate any time we have an opportunity to hear from missionaries, and I was pleased to hear that they were going to be with us today, and so we wanted to give them an opportunity to share that, that ministry. We're working on a new missions board back there, and uh, perhaps very shortly we'll have John and Molly's picture up there as well, and it would be nice to be a part of, of their ministry there uh, in Europe. Well, let's take a look just for a few moments this morning at Matthew chapter 21. I want to talk to you just for a minute today on the topic, Your King is Coming to You. Right before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the good presentation we've heard this morning. Lord, it always touches my heart when I see the need in other places. And Lord, we know we also have a need here. Uh, it's not that we would concentrate there and ignore here. Or that we would concentrate here and ignore there. We know the Great Commission says we're to be doing both, reaching all the world. And so, Lord, we pray today that you would bless the ministry of, of John and Molly and, uh, and, and give them fruit and help them, Father, as they prepare and get ready to go over there. I pray that all things would, uh, would work out well for them and they'd be able to raise their support and, and uh, all of the, the, the technical details that need to be worked out. I pray, Father, that would get taken care of and that you would just bless this effort. And help us, Lord, as a church to think about how we might partner with them and uh, be a part of that work as well. So just thank you for these few moments we've spent thinking about that need. But Father, now we turn our attention to our scripture for today. And, and Lord, as our brother John read in Matthew chapter 21, Lord, we, we want to talk about that event that took place uh, so long ago uh, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and proclaimed himself king. I pray today that you would guide us and direct us. I pray for your filling, filling of the Holy Spirit that... Lord, you would protect me today as I stand before these, your people. There is absolutely no reason that they should listen to me. Uh, Lord, I don't want them to listen to me. I want them to listen to you. And I pray today that you would speak, and you would speak through your word, and that, Father, you would help us to listen to it. Protect me, Father, that I wouldn't say anything wrong, that I wouldn't say anything inaccurate. I pray today for the filling of the Holy Spirit and protection from those kinds of things. I pray also, Lord, for boldness, that I might say the things I need to. So just bless this time in your word, we pray. Speak to us, Lord. Convict us. Help us to see the lateness of the hour. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, I do believe you guys have some literature on the back table, do you not? You have a little bit of additional literature on the back table, so when you leave today, in addition to, to uh, talking to John and Molly and asking them any questions you might have, make sure you stop by the table and see some of that literature that they have back there about their ministry. Well, I want to talk to you this morning just for a few minutes on the topic, Your King is Coming to You. We, uh, we have a passage here in Matthew chapter 21 that we read just about every year at this time. It's Palm Sunday. It's the traditional church observance of a historical event that is described here in Matthew 21, also in Mark, also in Luke. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a description of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem where he proclaimed himself king while crowds flocked and praised and welcomed him. And we always here at this church try to have it uh, kind of a celebratory atmosphere. I don't know if that's right or that's wrong. I, that's just the way I always look at Palm Sunday. I, I think it's like a celebration. I love the waving of the palm branches, and uh, I just like the songs. The music of Palm Sunday is always, I don't know, it always touches my heart. Hosanna is a word that's just musical. I, I just, it just makes me want to celebrate every time I think about that particular day. And I think... At least for a while. That's exactly what the atmosphere was like there. If you look at some of these verses that John read for us this morning, if you look in verse number 8, you, 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 you get a, a, uh, an idea of what the picture must have been like, of what the scene must have been like. Verse number 8 tells me there was a big crowd. Lots of people. 
Verse number 8 tells me they spread their garments in the road before him. I always try to picture what that must have been like as he was coming into Jerusalem and the road is just strewn with people's uh, garments. They also spread palm branches in the road before him according to verse 8, which is why we, we do this. We actually thought this morning about spreading a bunch of palm branches in the aisle there and then I thought what grass stain would look like ground in the carpet and I decided, ah. We do have a carpet guy coming this week to clean the carpet, but I don't think he would have been too pleased if he'd come in there and seen that. But imagine that they spread palm branches in the road. That's why we have these. That's why they're significant for the day because of that particular thing. Verse 9 tells me there was a lot of singing and a lot of shouting, uh, kind of a festive atmosphere. Verse number 9 tells me the crowd stretched out in front of him and behind him. Behind him, there was a lot of people. It was a moving procession. He was riding into Jerusalem. And when he arrived in Jerusalem... Uh, we see that the entire city was stirred up and involved in the event, verse 10. It wasn't just some little local thing. It was the whole city of Jerusalem. He nor his disciples needed to say a word of introduction because the whole city knew who they were. And all that were crowded around him were shouting, This is Jesus! This is, it must have been quite a scene, don't you think? I think it must have been. We always approach this day that way as a result, and we try to... Uh, to rejoice and celebrate. And why would we not celebrate? Why would we as Christians not have something to shout about on this day and really on any day? Because the reality, I think the main message of that passage is that the King is coming. And is that not something we ought to shout about? Is that not something we ought to wave a palm branch about? The King is coming. Is that not something that we ought to rejoice and sing? The music of Palm Sunday is always beautiful, but the music of the Lord is beautiful no matter what day we sing it. And we have a reason to sing it. Because the King is coming. Well, I want you to think this morning along those lines. I want you to think about three different kind of nuances of that thought that we see, both here and, and maybe a little bit further we'll read uh, as we get into it. But the first one is just that sentence. I want us to think about that sentence and how it applied to them at the time. The king is coming. The king is coming. You see, they understood they understood the prophets just fine. They knew exactly what the significance was of Jesus riding into that town on the back of a donkey that day. They knew exactly what he was saying. It was not lost on them. They knew the king was coming. The prophet Daniel had spoken of the coming king. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44 it says, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And when Jesus rode in that day, that was the kingdom they thought was being set up. The king is coming. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. That was the king that they thought was coming. The king is coming. They had heard the prophet Micah speak of it. Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2. But thou Bethlehem, Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is, to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. We read that every Christmas. Because it mentions Bethlehem. We ought to mention it today. Because it mentions the fact that the king is coming. The one who would be ruler in Israel. Zechariah had foretold it. Zechariah chapter 6, Speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. The king is coming. They had heard it. 
prophesied over and over and over again. Jesus, when he was calling his disciples at the very beginning of the Gospels, we have in John chapter 1 the account of Jesus talking with Nathaniel. Do you remember that story? Interesting little glimpse into the life of Nathaniel or the belief system of Nathaniel. In John chapter 1, verse number 49, Nathaniel answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. They were waiting for the King. Nathaniel was waiting for the King. They were all waiting for the King. When Jesus ascended back into heaven, and of course we're going to talk about that next week, maybe a little bit on Easter Sunday when we talk about the resurrection. But uh, when Jesus ascended back into heaven, the disciples who had listened to him for these three years now, and they were as uh, much uh, in understanding of his, of his mission and his thought processes and all that he was trying to accomplish as anybody, and yet still they were waiting for that kingdom that uh, John mentioned just a minute ago. Still, they were a little bit confused about, wait a minute, wait a minute, aren't you going to set up your kingdom right here? Listen to what they said. They said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel in Acts chapter 1 verse number 6 that's what they expected the king is coming they thought it was him the interesting thing about that is Jesus didn't correct them Jesus didn't say what are you talking about a kingdom he didn't say that he didn't say you're confused about this matter of a kingdom he didn't say that what he said was not now what he said was it's not for you to know the time In other words, implicit in his response was, you're right, there is a kingdom, and it will be set up. It's just not today, and only God knows when it's going to take place. In other words, Jesus confirmed the kingdom was coming. Just not yet. You see, that's what they believed. The king is coming. They understood the Bible prophecies well. And so when Jesus rode into that town, on the back of that donkey, they rejoiced. They couldn't help but sing, because they believed it was a fulfillment of prophecy, and it was. The king is coming. Second thought I want you to see, though, is this. The king is rejected. The king is rejected. Of course, we know the celebration ended. We'll talk about this more on Friday night as we have our Good Friday service. You read on in Matthew, you see the smiles of the crowd quickly faded. You see the scene turned from sunshine to darkness and from joy to sorrow. There wasn't any celebrating much longer after this. The king was rejected. Turn with me over to John chapter 19 and let me share a couple more verses with you. John chapter 19. To me, this is an illustration of the rejection. John chapter 19. We'll begin reading in verse 15. John 19, verse 15. But they cried out, away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified, and then they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. I think that passage so well demonstrates the rejection that was taking place here. 
Think about some of the phrases that we read right there, some of the thoughts. Uh, even Pilate recognized that Jesus had declared himself the king of the Jews. But the rejectors said, we have no king but Caesar. We prefer this world to his. We prefer this kingdom to his. They said, don't say, he, don't say that he was the king of the Jews. Say, he said I was the king of the Jews. We don't accept him as the king. That's just something he claimed to be. And so we see all throughout that passage the rejection of the king. Of course, he'd re- he had kind of predicted that response, hadn't he? He wasn't surprised by the rejection. In John chapter 2 and verse 25, Jesus, the Bible says that he had no need that anyone should testify of man. He knew what was in man. In Luke chapter 18 and verse number 8, he said, When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? The king was rejected. Now, I find that it's kind of common for Christians to look with some disdain on those who rejected Christ. I find that it's, it's pretty common for us to look at that situation and read those passages and think about those people and hear them shouting crucify and, and, and we feel a discomfort rise up within us, don't we? And we say, I would never do that. I can't believe they would do that. I would never have been in that crowd, don't we do that? Don't we find ourselves sometimes thinking, I would not have been one. I would have been one of the ones who stood faithfully at the foot of the cross as Jesus was crucified. But the fact is, this was not some abnormal or unrepresentative group of people. They were people just like you, and they were people just like me. I believe with all my heart what they did, you and I would have done too. I think they were just a picture of us all. A couple years ago, I was attending a Bible study in Hartville at a restaurant down there. And a group of guys that I, I would meet with on Friday mornings and. Uh, it's been a while since I was down there. The time that I was down there was right about the time of the election of our current president. And and there was a conversation, and I remember a very lively discussion that circled the table right about the time of the election. And the the conversation was about would this particular, this current president, president had taken us into war in Iraq as the previous president did. And, of course, you can imagine, you get into politics like that, and all kinds of nonsense was going around the table and bannering back and forth. One pastor very calmly spoke up. And he said something that I I have always thought was one of the more reasoned comments about that particular topic. He said the three most trusted intelligence agencies in the world, American, British, and Israeli, all agreed there was evidence and that we must go to war. He said it would not have mattered who was in office. We would have gone. And that, of course, he was the senior member of the party, and so this kind of quieted the whole conversation down. But it's a valid point, don't you think? When we have the same exact information, when we have the same exact data, we respond the same way. And I think we would have responded the same way had we been standing there that day. It was not relevant who was in the crowd. It's not relevant who turned and rejected him shortly thereafter. You and I would have done the same thing. King would have been rejected. Stuart Townsend in his beautiful hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, there's a verse that says this, Behold, the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulder, ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I, that, that, one, that one lyric, ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Does that not haunt your soul? Does it not remind you that we too would have rejected, we would have joined in? I wonder this morning as we ponder him riding into Jerusalem and proclaiming himself king, I wonder how many of us now treat him as king. Or how many of us even now reject him. 
How many of us really set the Lord Jesus Christ up on the throne of our lives? How many of us reject Him ultimately by not even accepting Him? And how many of us reject Him by just holding back and not allowing Him to rule and reign in our lives? The king was rejected. Third thought. Third thought, and with this one I'll be done. Your king is coming. Your king is coming. Every year we look at these same texts. We talked about this a little bit this morning in Sunday school. It never ceases to amaze me how every time you read Scripture, you can read the same verse over and over and over again, and the Lord will point out something different to you each time. I've read this text many times, and I don't remember uh, a time before that this particular phrase jumped out at me like it did this time. But verse number 5 says, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Your king. Your king. Suddenly as I read that, and as I thought about that, and as I prayed about what the Lord would have us to talk about today, it was as if this verse got very, very personal all of a sudden. My king is coming. Your king is coming. It would be very easy for us to read this as a quaint and interesting historical native 2,000 years removed. But when you think about that phrase, it becomes personal, doesn't it? He's your king. He's my king that is coming. My king your king. Of course he promised that. John chapter 14 is a verse we read oftentimes at funerals because it's so comforting to our hearts. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. We look forward to that, don't we? Our king is coming. My king is coming. In Acts chapter 1, after Jesus had ascended into heaven and the disciples were standing at gates, they up into heaven waiting for him to return. They expected him to come back like that. An angel of the Lord came down and said to them in chapter 11, or verse 11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come. In like manner as you saw him go. He's kind of come again. Brothers and sisters, this ride into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday was an illustration. It was a precursor to a day when Jesus will once again ride in and declare himself king. My king. Your king. But the next time it's not going to be so symbolic. The next time it's not going to look at all like it looked here. You want to know what it's going to look like when he comes back the next time? One more passage I want you to turn to. Revelation chapter 19. Turn there. We'll read that. And that will be the last passage I'll ask you to turn to. Revelation chapter 19. I think you'll see, when he comes this time, it's going to be dramatically different. Revelation is the last book in your Bible. Revelation chapter 19, look at verse number 11. I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, to with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This time there is no donkey. This time there is a white war horse. This time there will be no meekness or extended hand. This time, according to verse number 11, he judges and makes war. 
This time his eyes will be like a flame of fire. Verse number 12. This time he will be surrounded by the armies of heaven. Verse 14. And this time he will not meekly follow his enemies to a cross and surrender there to the nails in his hands and feet. This time he will strike the nations. Verse 15. This time he will rule them with a rod of iron. Verse 15. This time he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Verse 15. This time, as we heard just a little while ago in one of our songs, he will be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Your King, my King, is coming. And so we see this morning the familiar Palm Sunday passage. We look at it every year. And we see the same familiar truth. The king is coming. The king was rejected. A little bit of a twist this year. Your king is coming. To my mind, there is little doubt that the most interesting part of the story is not the donkey. I don't know. Maybe you think the donkey is the most interesting part. I do not. Uh, it's not the palms, even though they're pretty and we have fun waving them around. That's not the most interesting part. It's not the strewn garments. It's none of that. <laughs> to my mind, the most interesting part was the reaction of the crowd how they responded to the coming of the king. What did they do about it? And I would suggest to you today that that's the most important part of this few moments that we're spending together right now. Your king is coming. What are you going to do about that? What is your reaction to that? What is your response to that? You could, I guess, choose to ignore that. You could choose to just let that go right over your head. Well, that's interesting. And ignore it. Many do that today. Day after day comes, week after week comes, year after year comes. No response. They hear it said over and over again, your king is coming. They hear it said over and over again. You need to find it. You need to trust Christ. They ignore it. Right over there. But you know, ignoring reality never works. It just doesn't. When he comes, nobody will be able to ignore it. Surely that passage in Revelation was clear about that. How are you going to ignore that? My son was diagnosed with cancer a couple years ago, as most of you know. We went through a harsh time. I, I have mentioned to you before how I first heard the news of that announcement. I was hunting in the woods at my brother's. I was sitting against a tree. And I got a phone call from my wife, of course frantic, sitting there against the tree with his cell phone in the quietness of the woods, and I hear this frantic voice saying, Joshua has cancer, you need to go home now. I can say to you with absolute certainty that there was not a second that I thought about ignoring that summons. Not a one. I picked up, packed up, drove home as fast as I could drive. What would have been the point of ignoring it? Had I ignored it, it would not have changed the fact that he had cancer. Thank the Lord, this past year, he hunted with me down there. I took him and showed him that trick. Why is it that so many ignore the coming of their king? He is your king. He is coming. And it doesn't do any good to ignore it. You dare not ignore it. And yet so many do. You could choose, I suppose, not just to ignore it. You could choose this morning to reject it. That's not really an option either, is it? In the movie Braveheart by Mel Gibson, there's a scene that always interests me. He stands before the tribunal at the end of the movie. and The tribunal is hollering at him because he has rejected his king. And William Wallace, the character, looks at the tribunal and says, never once did I swear allegiance to him. And the tribunal says, it matters not. He is your king. 
And I always say, whatever I think about that, I think about how many people think that just because I have not sworn allegiance to Jesus, somehow that makes him go away. It doesn't. He is still the king. And he is still coming. Rejection means nothing. We sometimes think if I ignore it, it won't happen, but it's ludicrous. We sometimes think if we, if we reject him, I'll buy time, it'll, I'll get away. No, no, no. It doesn't work that way. In the rock opera Beethoven's Last Night, which is one of my favorite uh, little opera type things, by the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, there's a song sung by the character Mephistopheles, who is Satan. He has come in this silly story to claim the soul of Beethoven on his last night. It's just a silly story. But this song has got some haunting lyrics in it. Mephistopheles, Satan, is saying to Beethoven on his last night, he says, all of your life now, you have denied there'd be a time when you'd ever die. Still, it's been rumored this thing must be. And now you claim you're not prepared. So much to do, you cannot be spared. Still, your entreaties, death will not hear. The graveyard is filled with important men who could not be spared, but were in the end. And so I whisper now in your ear. Rejecting the truth doesn't change a thing. It doesn't change a thing. Your king is coming. Your king is coming. A short time ago, I was driving west on Waterloo Road, going out of Randolph. As I drove past the ball fields down there, I happened to notice one of our esteemed sheriff deputies sitting in a car by the ball fields. I ignored him. A fact that did not face him as he pulled out and put his lights on behind me. He pulled up behind me, and I stood there and talked to him. He described for me my speeding infraction and proceeded to, fortunately he just gave me a warning, but he proceeded to talk to me about that. And I, I wonder what would have happened if I had said to him, I reject your authority over me. I do not recognize that you are somehow able to do that. What would have been the result? I probably would have ended up before one of our esteemed Portage County judges, and perhaps I could have stood before them and said the same thing, I reject your authority over me. In which case, I no doubt would not be standing here this morning sharing with you from the Word of God. Ignoring the coming King is impossible. Rejecting Him is nonsense. There is only one valid response to the fact that your King is coming. And that's to accept Him. And that's to prepare for His return. You see, He came that first time and He surrendered to the death of the cross. He then went back to heaven from whence he now waits patiently for our response. You might say this is the amnesty period where all who want to enter the kingdom may do so. He stands with nail-pierced hands outstretched, offering citizenship in his kingdom to anybody who will take it. Now, that's what's going on. But each day you wait is one day less you might have to respond. One day less when you can respond. One day less when the Savior holds out his bleeding hands and one day closer to the return on a white war horse to destroy those who reject. On this Palm Sunday in 2011, I just wonder, what will your response to the coming king be? He is your king. Will you ignore him? Will you reject him? Or will you take advantage of the offer he now makes as he holds out his hands and says, you can be part of the kingdom if you'll come now. It's your choice. But time's running out. There's not a lot of time left. Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful truth of the Bible. We thank you so much for the story of Palm Sunday. We thank you, Father, for what we see in Jesus, 
riding into Jerusalem, the coming of the king. But Father, when we think about how it applies to us today, and when we think about the fact that our king is coming, and how, how the Bible is so clear that the time is running out, and that every minute we tarry, every minute we wait in our response to him is a minute closer to the door being closed, the kingdom being shut off, and us having no opportunity. Father, I don't know the needs of these your people, but I, I believe in a crowd of this size there must be. There must be, Father, somebody here who has never made a profession of faith. Somebody who, when they think about it, realize they have never been saved. They don't know for certain if they're part of that kingdom. They don't know for certain what would happen if the king did indeed come back today. Father, if there's even one like that, will you save their soul today? Will you not let them go through another Easter lost? Will you not let them go through another minute without knowing for certain they're on their way, they're part of the family, they're part of the kingdom? Father, would you save them today? And Lord, maybe there's other needs in the hearts of Christians here, whatever they might be. I pray, Father, you'd help and work in the hearts of people today. During this invitation, we ask for decisions. We ask that we would not ignore you. We ask that we would not reject you. We ask, Lord, that we would be in the number that accept and follow our coming King. Bless us, we sing. Help us to, to do what you'd have us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.